Acts 1, verse 8. This is God's word. But you will re receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all, to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day to those who were being saved. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Holy Trinity. I'm John, one of the pastors here. Raise your hand if you like winter in Chicago. Raise your hand if you're not sure about winter in Chicago. Raise your hand if you're, you dislike winter in Chicago, a few of you. Hey, the good thing is, is it makes you really enjoy warmer places in, in the summertime, right? That's good. I asked that because it's 18 degrees out when, when we all woke up this morning. We're in a series called Warming Our Hands and Warming Our Hearts, and we called it that because if you stay outside right now, you'll freeze to death, and, uh, or you'll be made hardy and strong and, and, and bold. Um, so welcome again to Holy Trinity. We're just uh, in a series right now where we're thinking about what does it mean to focus on the heart of God and the work of God? In other words, God's heart warms our hearts, and His work warms our hands. So we're, we're thinking a little bit at the beginning of 2022 about what is the work that God has put before us. And essentially what we're talking about is one main theme taken from the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, which is called the Great Commission, and it has to do with making practicing disciples. And what we've been thinking about is this idea, this was two weeks ago, that to be a disciple means to be immersed in the character and the community of God, that you're living in his presence, but it also means that you're invested in his mission, in his work. And it also means that you're instructed in the ways that he teaches. So that's what we talked about two weeks ago. Last week we talked a little bit about one of our three priorities over the next couple of years, which is uh, training practicing disciples. And we talked about something that we're kicking off called the Institute. There's little cards back there. And Tony mentioned a little bit about it. Great job with the announcements there, Tony. Shout out to Tony. Um, and this week what we're going to talk about is a, another priority for us, which has to do with fortifying our center city congregation. And uh, Billy, who shared last week, one of our elders, was saying that he, the way that he remembers the three priorities, which are fortify, invest, and train, is that they spell F-I-T, fit. And in fact, when we were in some of our elder dialogues on this over the last year and a half or so, Billy argued strongly that the word which had been strengthened 
our, our center city congregation, that it needed to become fortified because otherwise it's spelled sit, um, which is what we're all doing, you are all doing right now, but it doesn't have quite the sense of, of action or inspiration. So t- this, this morning, I'm really just going to focus on, on one priority that comes out of the idea of making, um, practicing disciples, and that is the idea of fortifying the community that gathers together. There's a, uh, a painting at the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, if you haven't been recently or haven't been at all, sell your car and go. Um, it doesn't cost that much, but uh, there's a painting by Edward Hopper, and some of you might know it. It's called Nighthawk, a very famous painting, even if you don't know the name of it or who the, the, the artist is, you might be able to picture it. It's of this a nighttime scene of a cafe or a diner, four people in it, and one of the people there has his back to us. This is painted in kind of the early 40s. I think he painted in 1942. So everybody's dressed really sharp and snazzy. The, the men have hats on, you know, and they look really sharp. The, the, there's a couple that's facing us, uh, or not exactly facing us, and they kind of look listless. The man is well-dressed. Uh, he has kind of a, a gaunt, chiseled face. And uh, he's nursing a cigarette in his fingers. The woman next to him is wearing a, a red dress, but nobody's really looking at each other. Uh, everybody's just kind of, sp- this is before cell phones and screens and scrolling and stuff. So it's like everyone's trying to find their cell phone. And they're like, look, I'm teasing. But there's this kind of this blank look of everybody uh, in, this, in this diner. Seems like it's about midnight, maybe, sometime late at night, and the streets are, are empty. And uh, Edward Hopper, uh, when he painted it, one of the things he said about it was he said, I guess that I, I was probably subconsciously painting the loneliness of a large city. I don't know if that resonates for anyone. Uh, when you think of a city, you think of many, many people. But it's possible to be lonely on a bus. <laughs> even though you're squished up against other people or to be on the L and feel like, does anybody even know I'm here or know who I am? It's possible to be uh, in a condo or an apartment and looking down, seeing all kinds of people, but feeling like there's a kind, I'll call it urban sadness of like so many people and yet a kind of anonymity, let's just sort of bumping into people. Um, when, I, when I think about that painting and the kind of urban sadness that it shows, it's sort of the opposite of the passage that we just read, which, to put it really simply, isn't urban sadness. It's like an urban gladness. In fact, one of the verses there says they were receiving their bread. Look at verse 46. The end says, with glad and generous hearts. If the picture that Hopper is painting is one of loneliness, this one is one of liveliness. Not even just liveliness, life. Because it's coming out of the context of the the disciples praying together in, in what they call the upper room. And waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and then the Spirit coming. And Peter preaching and basically for the first time in history... After Christ has risen from the dead, being able to preach the full truths of the gospel, all, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So this is a picture that we're going to look at this morning as I wanted to think about fortifying a center city congregation. What I really want to do is just show like this is what church looks like. It's like an idealistic picture of church as much as as uh, Hopper's picture is kind of a, a sad picture. This one is like is like Luke has painted for us what happens when the Spirit of God accompanies the Word of God to create the people of God in all of their joy. And uh, all I want to do this morning is I'm going to break it into three parts for us, um, not the, the message. And I'm just going to talk about Here's three R's for you. One is the reality of a center city congregation. I'm just going to talk a little bit about the reality from the text, but also like what does it mean to be a church in the center of the city? Some of you were raised in a rural context or a suburban context. You owned a building. You didn't have church in a hotel. You weren't part of an underground church like we are here, two, two floors below uh, land. So we're going to talk about the reality of, of a center city congregation. And then I'm, I'm going to just talk about some of the reasons why we need to fortify this congregation in order to be what, in order to have kind of urban gladness or just call it Christian gladness together. And then I'm going to talk briefly on, on kind of our response. So that's where we're going. I'm talk about the reality of a center city congregation. The, the reasons why we need to fortify this congregation from the text, really, it's biblical reasons, and then a response. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we bow before you. We thank you that we do have a place to worship, that even though uh, in many places across the world you're persecuted for gathering together for worship, we pray this morning that you would uh, help us to hear your voice and help us to... Um, see some of the challenges, yes, of being a center city congregation, but also some of the the joys and some of the opportunities as well of being a center city congregation. And we pray that you would accompany this time together, Lord, with uh, the the ministry of your word so that it might um, penetrate our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, very first thing, just reality of of center city congregation. So the very first one is that this church that's described in Acts 2.42 to 47 is a center city congregation. It's a very small point. But it's an important one because for much of North America, churches aren't in the center of the city. This one is. Jerusalem is. So like the model church in the opening part of Acts is right at the center of Jerusalem, founded on the resurrection of Jesus, founded on the coming of the Holy Spirit, but it's a community of gladness and generosity. You can see that in verse 46, which we already looked at, but look at what it says, verse 46. I want you to see how it's kind of a, a hub of joy and mission and discipleship in verse 46. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And it it mentions this centralized work of the church and all coming together in the temple. And then it mentions the network of all the relationships scattered also throughout Jerusalem in the homes. That's the very first thing I just want to show you, is that uh, this church is a center city church. Second thing is that, uh, the second reality is this, that any ministry in a 
city is very expensive. Okay, So this isn't a biblical reason. It's just a fact of doing work in a place like the center of the city, uh, like Chicago. Um, the cost, if you think about the temple, the first temple and the second temple after the first one was destroyed, it, it took a lot of resources, financial resources, to create those temples. And one of the reasons why we're in a hotel is because building a building or owning a building in the center of the city would cost probably around $12 million or so. And we'll be passing the offering plate later today. If you've got $12 million, just put it in. But any ministry in the, the rea second reality is any ministry in the center of the city is very expensive. Third reality about center city ministry is that it's needed. And I, I wish that you at some point, I kind of don't wish this, but I wish that you could see some of the weight of the people around you sitting in the pews. These aren't pews, in the chairs near, near you. The weight they carry every week. To see um, what it, the kind of crushing burdens of uh, life. It's not just center city life, but that kind of nighthawk vision of loneliness is very prevalent in our culture today not just in an urban context. I got a text yesterday from someone, sorry to whoever texted me yesterday. No, I asked permission for this. This guy has an uh, incredible job. Moved to the city, interestingly enough, on the last day of uh, our services almost two years ago. So his very first service at Holy Trinity was our last service for 53 weeks. Talk about tough, trying, trying to get connected in a tough way. And uh, got a great job um, at a law firm, actually. But his soul is being crushed by the work. Putting in 16-hour days, 18-hour days. And he's called me, texted me yesterday, say, I, I just don't think I can do it anymore. I don't think I can live a spiritual life in the city and do the work that I'm trying to do. And I think i got to move to another city, to New York or... Uh, back to North Carolina, he said. But he said, the only people that I met that I feel like actually have faith in Jesus are the people. This is not true. This is just his experience. People at Holy Trinity, he said, they're, you're, they're only Christ-following people that I've come across, and you're like a light and a beacon in the city. I'm not, I'm not trying to boast. I'm just saying, man, for this one guy to be there. So reality, one, is Jerusalem was, was this kind of church. Two, it's expensive. Three, it's needed. Four is kind of that grandiose thing that cities are places of influence and yet ironically are underserved and highly challenging, meaning if you take the downtown area of Chicago, there's almost no gospel-centered churches in what you might call the downtown area of the city of Chicago. I'm not talking about the greater Chicago. I'm just talking about the downtown region. And in fact, many churches have closed in the last two and a half years, three years. So I'm just saying that part of it's challenging. Last part, reality number five is this. So reality one is just Jerusalem's a center city church. Two is it's expensive. Three, uh, it's needed. Four is cities are challenging, but places of influence. And last reality is this. We might have we might, in God's grace, have found a place to meet um, before, Lord willing, April 1st. I don't know, but I'm just going to tell you a quick story about this, okay, because some people are praying, and 
Uh, for, for the last, what, for, for about 14 years, we were meeting in a place called the Murphy Auditorium. It was great. 80-foot ceiling, seats like 350 people, terrible nursery facilities, meeting in like a coat room closet, literally. Um, really soft marble staircases that children can slip on, things like that. Anyway, it's a good place to meet in for 14 years, and then we got bounced from there. Well, in the fall, um, I was outside, and I told you this a couple of times ago in a sermon, but I, I had came up with this like Paris Bistro idea for our office where if you take a small bistro table from the third floor of our office and put it on the sidewalk next to the other restaurants, then it's like you're outside and kind of storing up some of the warmth of the fall. And, and so I was outside one day and this guy comes by and working outside on Zoom calls or whatever, a little strange because people are like trying to figure out what you're doing there and what's happening, you know. So this guy walks by me and he looks at me and is trying to figure out what's going on. And then he says, here's my card, call me. And I'm like, okay. And I look at the card and I'm like, oh, this is the owner of the building who we rent the office from. I'm busted. And so I said, hey, I'm, I said, well, truth be told, some of the reasons why I was outside is because you can smoke a cigar when you're outside, but that kind of contradicts the fit imagery of, of our vision statement. It's a little more sit-oriented, but anyway, so I'm outside. He gives me his card. He says, call me, and I said, hey, I can move if you want me to. He says, no, 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 no. He says, there had been a fire there in the last two years. There had been looting. It was boarded up. So he says, no, you being outside here is like the best thing that's happened in two years. I don't know why he said that. So I call him up, and I, I thought he was really trying to kick me out. I said, I'm, hey, I'm sorry. I can move if you want. He goes, no, 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 no. I got other space that I'd like to show you if you want to look at it. So this is in about October. I said, I'm not interested. We got this. Anyway, two weeks later, he sees me again. He says, hey, come on and look at some of the space. I said, no, I'm not going to look at the space. I'm busy trying to work, and I'm studying. Leave me alone. And he says, no, just come on. It'll take like five minutes, seven minutes or something. So somebody comes down and watches my table. We go next door to 36,000 square feet of, of space. Um, eat the, the footprint's 12,000 feet per floor. And uh, I, so I see it, but I'm like, whatever. I got to go back and work on my sermon. And I saw it. So then after the 200 East Ohio stuff happened, and we had no place to go. In December, I was talking to some of our staff, and we were like made a list of 15 places we can go after April 1st because we were kicked out of here. And that one came up, and I said, what about that space? And they're like, what do you mean, what about that space? And I said, you know, the space next door. And they're like, we don't even know what you're talking about because I had put it on my mind and I hadn't told them. So then I walked them through it, and they're like, oh, this is beautiful. Why didn't you tell us about this? And I'm like, I had other things to do, I guess. I'm not sure. Anyway, long story short, I met with the guy on December 17th and then on January 7th, and um, we have a verbal agreement that uh, we could rent 12,000 square feet for about the same price as it was going to cost us to rent 6,000 square feet uh, at 200 East Ohio, that is the monthly cost which is about how much we're paying right now to rent this for a few hours on a Sunday plus our offices. So this plus our offices costs about $170,000 a year. So for the same amount of money, we could have 24-7 space and have 12,000 square feet. Um, the last place we were looking at, 200 East Ohio, had a five... It started, our, our commercial landlord said that we could get it for, that we'd need $85,000 of construction costs and he'd give it, that he'd pay for it. 
And then a couple months later, it was five to six hundred thousand dollars in construction construction costs, which is why part of the reason why all of us felt I think like that's not the right place for us. It looks like we can roll any construction cost into our first year of rent and still keep it under one hundred seventy thousand dollars. Anyway, all that is to say is we there's like an adventure of being in the city. Everything's out of our hands in one sense, like right. And one of our congregants, uh, one of our steering committee members wrote to me after all this, and, and uh, we had a steering committee meeting this week, and she said, hey, I'm really amazed. She says, at how God has provided for us, I would say at how God may have provided for us in our search for a new space, and I can really see our Heavenly Father's hand leading us through to this point through all the bumps on the road. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. There may just be more bumps on the road. But I just want to give you a little bit of an update about the reality of cost in the city, the importance of it, the strategic importance of it, the need for it, but also keep, keep praying. Tomorrow I'm going to meet with a couple lawyers to see if we can move forward. So after the service, I, I may take a few questions, but what I really want to do now is to show you some reasons for fortifying a community of gladness from the text. So. One of, the, one of the priorities of the elders of the church we want to say for the next three to five years is to fortify a center city congregation, to make us stronger, essentially. And I just want to give you a, a few reasons from the text on why that, I, that is important. And the first reason I would say is mission. Fortifying a local church means fortifying God's mission. So Acts 1.8 says, and you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But the unit of God's power and hope in the world is really not the family. It's really not government. It really is the local church is the hope of the world. The church is the community from which all the activity should go. One, one um, theologian and missiologist whose name is Leslie Newbegin put it this way. <laughs> Thanks, Joel's writing his dissertation on New Begin. The church, wherever it is, is not only Christ's witness to its own people and nation, but also the home base for the mission to the ends of the earth. And I could go on and on and tell you how many wonderful things God has launched from this little tiny place called Holy Trinity Church. It's absolutely stunning and amazing. But that's part of the reason for fortifying a congregation is because the ends of the earth need the glory of God. The second reason that I'll give here from the text on why we need to fortify this congregation is because the church is not only God's unit of mission, it's also his unit of devotion and community. Listen to verse 42. When they're together, this is what's happening. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's, in one sense, what we're doing right now. What do the apostles have to say? They're devoting themselves to fellowship that is having things in common to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came on every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles this is a kind of community as fragile as it seems it's the unit of God's mission in the world it's the unit of God's devotion in the world the gathered people of God again Newbegin says mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy the news that a rejected and crucified Jesus is alive. Somebody's supposed to say amen after that. Okay, thank you, Lawrence. 
who cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told who could be silent about such a fact that is the aliveness of Jesus. The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like a fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. See, that's a life-giving community, and we need to... It doesn't just happen by accident. It happens by intentionality and people saying, I'm going to give my life to this kind of mission to this kind of devotion, why fortify for the mission of God, for the community of God, for the generosity of God also. Listen, part of what's so striking in this passage is the generosity. It hits you and either inspires you, makes you feel guilty or something, you like you want to evade it a little bit. Here's what it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. God calls us to surrender everything to him, including all that we have. And that's the picture of the church here, of generosity. Um, in a couple weeks, we're going give to give out a book by Randy Elkhorn called The Treasure Principle, just to rethink our money. And one of the things he says is that whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. And he talks about his own journey of like going from, hey, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, to this. He says, once we understood that we were giving away God's money to do God's work, we discovered a peace and a joy that we never had back when we thought it was our own money. Fortifying the church helps to strengthen the mission of God, the community of God, the generosity of God. But it also helps to create a home for the work of God. That's what the temple was. It was a place for the work of God. It was a missional Discipleship training hub to catechize people, to take children and sit them on a knee, teach them who the resurrected Jesus was, to train young women what it looks like to go and be the light of Christ in the world, to teach a, a young woman how she is made in the image of God, anointed with his beauty and with his power set aside for the work that that's what the temple was it was a hub a home for the work of god in the world and it takes fortification i already read this but listen to the dailiness of this they're in the temple day by day and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in homes so centered and networked there were they were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The temple became a kind of hub for the praise of God. And energy was given to the people as they came together. God's spirit by God's word painted a new community of such urban gladness that people were filled with awe and generosity and others came in. One last reason for fortifying the, the work of God or fortifying a congregation in the center of the city is not his mission, not community, not gener generosity, not just a home for the work of God, but uh, also for, for growth and outreach. Look at the last little thing it says. that If you have this explosion of joy that Newbegin talks about, he's saying we don't keep it to ourselves. It's for the world to know the beauty and the proximity and the holiness and the preciousness of the living Christ.
Praising God, verse 47, it says, and having favor with all the people. Doesn't feel like a modern-day description of Christians, does it? Having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So what I'm saying is that, 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 that the gathered people of God are a, a crucial instrument in the ongoing mission of God in the world. It's like his, it, not just like, the church is his plan, the local church is his plan, and it's his only plan to spread the mission, spread the news, the people of God. So I want us to think about over the next few weeks about how to fortify this, this congregation the reality of a center city congregation, the reasons for fortifying, and then just the response, which is, let's give ourselves to the crucified and risen one who is the hope of the world. Give our hearts to him, give our gladness to him, give our resources to him. Uh, you have, we have this one chance to live. In all your professions, in all the neighborhoods across the city of Chicago. So let's respond to him in the years to come with what it says here is devotion. There's actually two, two words of devotion here. It says it in verse 42, they devoted themselves to these things. And then where it says they attended the temple, temple and house to house, it's the same word. They were devoted. They're devoted to few priorities and devoted to the gathering together of the people of God. This, this gathering, this kind of gathering, is God's plan to bring hope to the world. If, if Edward Hopper was unconsciously painting the loneliness of the city, let's consciously paint a new kind of community. Not of loneliness, but of life. Not of isolation, but of devotion and of connection. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that Edward Hopper's painting is uh, stark and, and uh, spare as it is, is not the only reality of the urban environment. That you have for many years, 2,000 years, been doing something because someone couldn't have been kept in the ground named Jesus Christ. That you have been doing something not only in cities like Chicago, but places like New York, and smaller places throughout the world, Lord, places like Galilee, that your spirit has been at work. You know our hearts here today, Lord, that some of us are tired. Some of us have what might be called long COVID, communal long COVID. Some of us don't know how to connect anymore, God. So connect us together, Lord, with this spirit that you have put into the book of Acts that you had Luke paint. And may we uh, live in light of this power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.